Support for Everything Explained comes from the College of St. Rose in Albany, offering master's and certificate programs for working adults looking to advance or change their careers. Easily accessible to downtown and state offices, the College of St. Rose has served the Capital District since 1920. strose.edu grad programs to apply. Since the outcome of the 2016 election, as with many high-profile elections before it, allegations of voter fraud have made the rounds across media outlets from people upset with the outcome. Recently, these charges have surfaced again, but unlike the times before, the allegations are coming from the winning party. President Donald Trump told former Fox News host Bill O'Reilly in February that he would establish a commission to investigate voter fraud and improper registrations. You take a look at the registration. You have illegals, you have dead people, you have this. It's really a bad situation. It's really bad. Vice President Mike Pence was appointed chairman of President Donald Trump's election commission. The goal of the group was officially to, quote, study the registration and voting processes used in federal elections. The group will ultimately look into allegations of voter fraud during the 2016 election, where Trump claims more than 3 million people voted illegally. The vice chairman of the election commission, the secretary of the state of Kansas, Chris Kobach, has been characterized as the, quote, king of voter suppression by the American Civil Liberties Union. It is worth noting that as of August 2017, there is no proof of widespread in-person voter fraud or non-citizen voting. This is Everything Explained, a WAMC Northeast Public Radio production. I'm Patrick Garrett. This week, we decided to take a look into voter fraud, what it is, what constitutes fraudulent voting, and how much of an impact it has on the election cycle. You can hear from the expert herself on this issue. I'm Victoria Bassetti. I'm a contributing fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU, and I'm also the author of the book called Electoral Dysfunction, A Survival Guide for American Voters. Victoria Bassetti has been on the pod before. You might recognize her from our Electoral College episode last year. But obviously this time, we're talking about voter fraud. So the issue at hand that we're talking about today is, what is voter fraud? Well, there is the myth of voter fraud, there's the reality of voter fraud, and there's the theoretical possibility of voter fraud. So let's talk about the theoretical possibility of voter fraud. Whenever you're running a system that has, you know, a uh, hundred million people coming to polls that are set up once a year or twice a year, administered by millions of people who who also only do it once a year across 10,000 voting districts, there's the possibility for chaos and there's also the possibility for the wrong person voting or voting voting in the wrong location or being ineligible to vote because they're not a citizen or not actually a resident there. So there's all sorts of possibilities for fraud, for the wrong people voting um, in that sort of a system. That's the theoretical possibility of voter fraud. There is the reality of voter fraud, which is that it's vanishingly small. Uh, pretty much every academic journalist legal study and analysis of voter fraud in the United States shows that it occurs 
at the smallest possible rate, 0.0001% of the time someone casts a ballot that they're not legitimately entitled to cast or casts a ballot where they're attempting to you know, steal the election or pretend to be someone that they're not. Uh, that's the reality of voter fraud. The myth of voter fraud is that uh, we're all scared that people are out there trying to steal elections and that there are millions, you know, we, the president of the United States says there were two to three million illegally cast votes in the last election. Uh, the myth, the origins of the myth lie in American history. Everyone knows about Tammany Hall or they know about, you know, yeah. the Chicago voter mills. And, and it's such a strong, powerful story in American political history that it seems to overhang all of our understandings of voting today. But we have a modern, efficient voting system in America right now. It's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. There are lots of things that need to be improved. There are lots of things that you can point at that are wrong or badly done. But it is, we, it's Tammany Hall doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> Going back to Tammany Hall or, like you said, the Chicago Mill, what are some examples throughout history of actual voter fraud? Sure. You know, in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, there were uh, city-based machines, and there were also rural machines that uh, engaged in all sorts of uh, nasty activity. Tammany Hall was famous in the uh, late 19th century for raiding the polling places of kind of ri of rival organizations or uh, strongholds of the other party and stealing ballot boxes and dumping them into the East River. Uh, they were famous for running these repeater mills where they would bribe or, you know, pay with beer and food people to come in and vote multiple time across across multiple precincts. So that was the sort of stuff that, you know, that went on in the 19th and the 20th century. What's ironic about Tammany Hall, of course, is that Tammany Hall, while Tammany Hall was operating in New York City, there were comparable operations up, operating in upstate New York. And so there were right. always these battles of holding back the vote count. So, you know, New York City would wait until they heard the Albany vote count and they heard the Poughkeepsie vote count or the Rochester vote count and, you know, then calculate how many they needed to add to, you know, kind of win the election for the city. But the, a comparable thing was going on in Rochester and Albany and Poughkeepsie, where they were holding back their vote count to see what Tammany was going to do. It, there, no one was clean in the in in that time period in terms of manipulating the vote. But that was 100 years ago. Were there even any preventative measures to stop voter fraud? Well, that's that's exactly what happened. So the the the, the progressive era and the the uh, the there was always a, a push and pull between you know the Tammany Hall machine or the not just Tammany Hall but all of the machines that wanted to kind of control and stack the vote and the kind of the good government reformers who wanted the vote to be clean and fair. So there was a constant push and pull over the course of decades from the late 19th century into the 20th century. By the 1940s, American elections were bureaucratized, they were systematized, they were made efficient, and they were, you know, kind of rigorously controlled. So for, for more than 80 or 90 years, the American voting system has been professionalized and and legalized uh, and made very kind of clean uh, compared with what it was, you know, in the late 19th century. 
as set forth in the elections clause of Article 1, Section 4 in the U.S. Constitution, it says that states are in control of the processes that go forward in an election. Is that still necessary in a 21st century environment? Well, you know, in the wake of the Russian interference with the 2016 election, a lot of people all of a sudden looked at our decentralized voting system as a virtue rather than a vice. So it's a, it's a complicated question to answer. The first is to understand that the federal and state running of elections are kind of intertwined. It's predominantly state, but there are federal standards and there are federal rules um, about the way voting is supposed to be administered. But it's it's kind of light, top-level rules on the federal level. For example, voter registration and the processes for registering voters is controlled by federal standards. In addition, for example, the ability of states to strike people from the voter rolls is also governed by federal standards. But by and large, you know, when you walk into your voting district, wherever you are in the United States, the type of machine that's being used, the type of uh, forms that you have to fill out, the design of the ballot, the people and the training of the staff who are there is done on a state level. It's even done on a local level. It might be done almost down to the precinct level. So the decisions are being made by your city council, by your local election board, by your state secretary of state. And it means that we've got a real smattering of rules and a a, a wide diversity of effectiveness and efficiency and professionalism across the United States. Um, It also means that the voter registration rules are kept throughout all of the states, uh, that the tallies are done through all sorts of different rules. Uh, I could go on, but in 2016, when it turned out that someone was possibly trying to hack our election rolls, and we know that there were like almost 30 attempts across 30 states by the Russians to hack into our registration rolls, all of a sudden, that diversity of of techniques seems like it was a great tool to prevent disaster. So I, it, it sort of seems to me that there's there's obviously the possibility for some high level of federal supervision or high level rules that are good, but that being close to the voters in determining how voting occurs is also a virtue. By the way, I should add, you know, federal supervision of elections is difficult when you consider that so many elections are state elections. You know, the vast majority of elections that people vote in are state-based or local elections. And so the federal government doesn't really have a say or, you know, in your uh, education board election or in your decision to vote on um, a bond issuance or something like that. Is there a risk in letting the federal government have too much control? Yeah, sure. There's there's always risk in having anyone have too much control. There's nothing per se wrong with the federal government having control or or not having control, just like there's nothing per se wrong with your state secretary of state having control or not having control. What's important is to have a system that is attuned to the customer, which is to say the voter and to have a system that actually encourages voting, that makes it efficient and easy, that makes sure that the votes are counted accurately. I don't know that federal bureaucrats or state bureaucrats or local bureaucrats are just by virtue of being federal, state, or local better or worse at any of that. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, for example, among many others, has called allegations of voter fraud a myth. Now, 
we've talked about how most voter fraud in the modern era is very minimal. So voter fraud today in 2017, is it more based in fact or fiction? You will always find stories of people voting illegally in any election. Um, again, when you've got 130 million people casting ballots at one on one day or over the course of a few weeks, there's always going to be the anecdote. The Brennan Center, for example, recently did a study, called up 42 election officials to attempt to determine whether or not there was non-citizen voting in the 2016 election, and based upon their interviews, found approximately 30 examples of non-citizen voting. So yeah, 30 examples, but that's 30 examples across approximately 35 million votes cast. So you have to ask yourself, uh, were those 30 non-eligible citizen votes bad? Yes, they shouldn't have been done. And in fact, the people who cast those votes were caught, punished, and their votes were invalidated. So there is voter fraud. It happens. The more relevant question is, how extensive is it? Do or, we have systems already to catch it? Or even if it's completely on purpose. That's right. And, and, and that sort of intentional manipulation, uh, m the vast majority of quote-unquote voter fraud is mistake. It is uh, someone not quite realizing that they were not eligible to vote in this or that district. It's, it's, it's really just a mistake, a good faith error. For example, uh, another example, let's go back to the non-citizen voting. Oftentimes what happens is a non-citizen registers to vote when they get their driver's license. So you go into the driver's license, and the, the driver's license, the DMV, is, is legally required to ask you whether or not you also want to vote at the same time. Then you vote. You fill out the, fo you, you fill out the registration form, which very quickly, because, you, you know, you've just been at the DMV for the last hour and a half, and you're just like, oh, okay, let me get out of here, right? And so you fill out the form, and then you're a non-citizen, right? And then yeah. you get home, and you're like, oh, ugh, I'm, I'm not entitled to vote. There are many instances of non-citizens going in to their election board and saying, I registered by accident. I'm so sorry. Please take me off. So, you know, it's all good faith. A lot of people make mistakes. Another example is felon voting. Many states uh, bar a f someone who has a felony conviction from voting for life. Others bar you from voting as long as you're on probation or parole. So there are a, a, a diversity of rules about when you regain your vote if you've been convicted of uh, being a felon. Uh, there are instances of people who are still on parole voting without realizing that, you know, they weren't entitled to vote and going in and confessing error and then getting arrested, by the way, for illegal voting, even though they confessed error. Uh, there's a, a spectacular case where that happened. So anyway, there's a lot of mistake intentional, malicious voting, very, very rare. And when it does occur, it tends to be organized, um, and it tends often to be organized by election officials. <laughs> well, that's interesting. The actual <laughs> officials involved in the whole process to make it fair. Yes, exactly. And that's the, the most extensive and pervasive instances of voter fraud tend to occur on a local level reflecting local elections and are an effort by party, let's call them party bosses or party leaders to make sure that their candidate wins. 
Um, and that's and of course that sort of organized voter fraud tends to get caught because it involves multiple people. It inv- usually has uh, signs of fraud occurring. You know, strange vote patterns. So that that sort of effort does ultimately tend to get caught. What happens when? say, that very minuscule amount of real-life actual voter fraud occurs, what happens beyond that? Are there repercussions not just for the person, but on a wider scale? Yeah, it's, it's, if the, one of the reasons why voter fraud is so rare is because the likelihood of getting caught is very high. The penalties for being caught very high. It can include prison time. It can include fines. Uh, the, and the the benefit that you derive from committing voter fraud is de minimis. You you changed one vote. You added one vote to a million cast. So the rationale for committing individual malicious voter fraud, me, you know, Victoria Bassetti, going around and trying to cast a ballot five times, is it's just stupid. Yeah. You know, why would I do that? Why would I risk? getting caught, spending time in prison in order to add four extra votes. So that doesn't make any sense. Organized, you know, official voter fraud could swing an election, but is even more likely to get caught and even more likely to result in prison time. When was the last time, if at all, that voter fraud has occurred on a large enough scale to swing the outcome of an election? Well, there was a, a prosecution and a ring that was running in West Virginia about 15 or 16 years ago where some local elections were swung as a result of this um, kind of official voter fraud ring. Um, they got caught and, you know, ultimately put in prison. Um, then the, the uh, you know, the other story that everyone talks about is um, Chicago in the uh, 1960 election and their allegations that the Daily Machine stole Illinois uh, to make John Kennedy president. Uh, that seems there's there's a lot, there's actually now a lot of um, uh, academic debate about whether or not that story is true. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one doubts that there was some you know, kind of ballot stuffing that may have occurred in Chicago, but no one believes that it was so extensive that it actually changed the outcome of the election. Um, uh, the, the academic literature kind of casts a lot of doubt on that myth nowadays. If I'm not mistaken, I believe a lot of that is for Chicago is believed because it had to do with the mob and then his own father's connections to the mob in Boston and how Boston and Chicago link together. And that's why... It's the small details that link these stories yeah, yeah, and make them believable. It's a great story, you know what I mean? And it's, it's the, the, the story makes a lot of sense. And so much time has passed now that there's, I don't know if, if, if there's any telling about it, but even in 1960, when there was a substantial investigation of the alleged fraud in Chicago and President, well, then candidate Nixon to become president about eight years later, uh, President Nixon sent people to Chicago to investigate the allegations of fraud in 1960, and they didn't find that much either. This is sort of like the persistent pattern of voter fraud allegations. They're the, the losing party, whoever it is, Democrat or Republican, yells fraud, 
you know, gets a lot of coverage about it, tells a very credible story, and then once people start digging into it, they realize that the that these instances of voter fraud sort of vanish in the wind when you actually try to build the individual cases up. There was a similar sort of series of allegations in South Carolina a, a few years ago where there were allegations that, I think it was like, I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but it was like, let's say, you know, 80 dead people voted in the last election and then and got lots of coverage, you know, 80 dead people voting. How horrible. And then investigators and reporters went to to each of these 80 people who voted and found most of them were actually alive. What it what you know, what had happened is someone with the same name voted. So, for example, you, Patrick, have a very common name. There might be a Patrick Garrett who died recently near where you live. A famous one who shot Billy the Kid right? in Texas. Yeah, and I, so you've got a, a name with a great provenance. Yeah. Right? And but but imagine someone, Patrick Garrett Senior, or Pat, you know, died recently, and you're Patrick Garrett Junior. Someone analyzing the vo- the rolls would see Patrick Garrett voted, but Patrick Garrett just died. So hmm. a dead person voted, but then when they track it down, they realize it was actually you who voted, not the guy next door who had the same name who died. That happens all of the time. Uh, I think uh, sometimes the other thing that happens is someone casts an absentee ballot, and then in between the time that they cast the absentee ballot and the actual, their absentee ballot is counted, the, the, the person died. There was a recent incident of something exactly like that happening. Yeah. If somebody casts an absentee ballot beforehand... Does that make their vote not count? It depends on the state. Each state has different rules on it. For example, famously, Barack Obama's grandmother died before 2008, before the 2008 election, but she had had the opportunity to cast her absentee ballot for her grandson, and it was counted. But, you know, there's a, it, it can be complicated. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure, yeah. especially with early voting yeah. that has occurred in other states. Um, is there a best way to prevent voter fraud? Again, the, given the diverse ways that voter fraud can occur, there's no silver bullet. You can't say, we'll do this and all voter fraud will vanish. Hmm. Um, so there are a, a multiplicity of, of tools that secretaries of state and election administrators use to prevent mo- voter fraud. One that I really like is used in Connecticut. So as I mentioned to you, there's a uh, one form of voter fraud is known as um, absentee mills, and it's where what you do, this is the kind of official organized voter fraud technique, uh, where what you do is you go into, say, a senior citizen home, and you get everyone in the senior citizen home to apply for an absentee ballot, and then you sit and supervise them filling out their absentee ballot, or you even take it and fill it out yourself, right, mm. and then mail it in for these 50 senior citizens in the home. Sometimes it also happens in college dorms. And so what Connecticut has done is when they see a large batch of absentee ballot applications coming in from the same address, they actually require an official election official to be present when the absentee ballots are filled out. So they, hmm. they actually supervise the casting of the absentee ballots to make sure that there's no fraud ring going on. So that's one way to catch one type of voter fraud. Then you will see uh, another way to catch voter fraud or to prevent voter fraud is to make sure that your election rolls, your list of people who are registered, is well-maintained. 
and doesn't contain, you know, multiple names or dead people or non-citizens or so on and so forth on the rolls. And that requires that you have an, an election administrator who is a good maintainer of lists. That can spiral out of control, though, because if you're overzealous in purging and scrubbing your lists, what you can accidentally do is knock a bunch of legitimate people off the list in an effort to catch that one non-citizen or to catch that one dead person who's on the rolls. So you have to be very, very careful about how you purge voter rolls. Some states are really good at it. Other states are bad at it. You know, there was a a really bad incident, a reported incident of it occurring in Brooklyn earlier in um, 2016 when over 100,000 people were purged from the rolls, and no one knows exactly why yeah. or how. During the Democratic primary, yes. Exactly. And then in Florida, in right before the 2000 election and even after the 2000 election, there was a lot of kind of messy purging where they just kind of they messily and, and, and kind of unthoughtfully dumped a bunch of people's names off of the list. And, and as a result, a lot of people with Latino names were dumped off of the list. Oh, interesting. In, yeah, in Florida. Yeah, you know, so, so, you know, that's, that's one way of preventing voter fraud, but it has to be done very carefully. You have to balance the equities. You have to make sure that you don't knock legitimate voters off the list because the most heartbreaking thing that could happen is you deprive a thousand people of their vote in an effort to catch one potential non-citizen voter who probably isn't going to try to vote anyway because yeah. if he or she did he or she would get caught and and prosecuted and since they're non-citizen probably yeah yeah so it's it's very um you know, it's a very that's one way to do it. The other thing that, of course, is really popular um, is the voter right voter identification requirements, right? So that's the uh, you know that's trying to keep people from pretending to be someone else in voting. So you go, you know, you vote as Patrick Garrett in your local precinct, and then you know John Smith, the precinct over, is not going to show up on election day. So you go, you know to the next precinct and tell them you're John Smith and then vote for John Smith. That's mm -hmm. voter impersonation. So there are a lot of, uh, you know, kind of efforts to require you voter, know, IDs. voter IDs before you can vote. No one disputes that some form of identification or of proving that you are who you say you are at the poll is fine. You know, for example, again, to use the New York example, you don't actually have to show identification when you go to vote in New York, but you do have to sign your name, and they check to see whether or not the names match. So that's one way of, you know, kind of checking ID and, and, and so on and so forth. Not to get too far into the topic of yeah. voter IDs, but what are some of the issues that, that come with requiring voter IDs? So requiring some form of voter ID is not, no one thinks the worst thing in the world. Show your bill, show your library card, show your employer ID, something that says you are who you say you are. The, 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 the dispute occurs when we start quibbling over exactly the nature of the identification that you show. So in some states, what they do is they require valid, current, government-issued identification like a driver's license or a passport. And it's uh, for their large numbers of people, 
ten, you know, by some estimates, 10% of the overall U.S. population doesn't have current valid government-issued photo identification, i.e. a passport or a driver's license. And then when you start going into specific communities, the lack of that identification is even higher. In African-American communities, it can be as high as 20 or 25 percent who don't have that form of identification. Um, amongst the elderly, um, their uh, married name and their photo ID might not match. Um, amongst younger people who are like uh, under the age of 25, there's a very large percentage of people under the age of 25 who don't have driver's licenses. So when you start requiring that strict photo identification, you all of a sudden start inhibiting the ability of large numbers of people to actually vote. And you're doing that for no appreciable reason. There's not voter impersonation as an actual problem at the ballot box. And there are plenty of other ways of making sure that the person is who they say they are short of requiring strict voter voter identification. It's a, you know, it's a solution in search of a problem. And it's a draconian solution in search of a problem. So for my final question, is there a way to, quote, eliminate voter fraud to the extent where it's just not even an argument to begin with? Or should it even be an argument today? Well, can any human system be perfect? Can we really... And are we willing to pay the price to make it so perfect? You know, we have to probably accept the possibility that in a human-run system where, like I said, 130 million people are casting their ballots, there's going to be some messiness. It's going to happen. But the one thing I would say is is that if you were to compare the every enterprise, government, corporate, human – has to run the risk of fraud and abuse and theft and so on and so forth. If you were running Walmart, you would be worried all the time that your employees were inflating their time, that they were stealing things off the shelf, that there were shoplifters and so on and so forth. There's no business or organization that doesn't have to worry about this. But if you were Walmart and you had a theft or a fraud rate that's like the fraud rate that we deal with in elections, you would think you were running one of the most efficient, fabulous organizations that there is in the United States. A fraud rate of 0.0001% for Walmart would be a banner year. And we should, you know, we should understand that for our election system to have as low a fraud rate as it does is actually a, a testament to how hardworking the people who run our systems are. True American values. Yeah, it's you know, it's 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 to me at least one of the most heartbreaking thing about this kind of descent into you know anger and anxiety about our voting system is that we've turned away from being proud of how extraordinary our democracy is and how amazing it is when we have people show up at the voting polls every November. It's an extraordinary act of civic participation that we engage in. I'm talking with Victoria Bassetti, a contributing fellow of the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU. Her book is Electoral Dysfunction, a Survival Manual for American Voters. And I should say, all opinions are my own. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us today. Everything Explained is produced by WAMC Northeast Public Radio. 
with assistance from Kristen Gilbert, Matthew Plummer, Carl Blackwood, and Jim Lavoulis. A special thanks to Victoria Bassetti for coming on the pod today. I'm your host, Patrick Garrett. As always, we want to remind you to subscribe and leave a review, because like everyone else in the pod realm will tell you, it helps us to make more podcasts just like this one. Thank you.